Welcome to my new podcast, Why Didn't Anyone Tell Me This? With my guests, we are discussing health issues, questions you have about your health, and debunking some of the myths around our health. And it's an absolute pleasure today to be talking to Dr. Shima Tarek, mothering against the odds, surviving infertility, baby loss, and postnatal depression. Shima is a senior research fellow at University College London's Institute for Global Health, and honorary consultant in HIV at Mortimer Market Centre. Her research focuses on health inequalities in HIV care. In 2014, Chima was awarded a prestigious Fulbright scholarship to conduct HIV research at Columbia University. Since coming to UCL in 2015, Chima has built a programme of work focusing on the health and well-being of women living with HIV. She leads the PRIME study, one of the largest studies in the world, exploring menopause among women living with HIV. So welcome, Shima. Hi, Joyce. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. So as well as being a doctor, you have a master's in medical anthropology and epidemiology and a PhD in public health. That's a very impressive list of qualifications. So I'd like to start by asking you about your career journey and how you decided to work on HIV? Wow, so my my career journey, all of it was unplanned. So this is not what I ever expected to do. Um, and just before we came onto this call, we were chatting and I was telling you that I had a misspent youth in the 90s setting up warehouse techno parties. So I didn't think that I'd be a clinical academic at UCL. Um, So I wasn't a particularly brilliant medical student. I didn't, I I was just very, very average, below average. I think um, when I qualified for medical school, I were, when people were uh, trying, then people were um, guessing what people might do or predicting what people might do 10 years down the line. And um, I remember someone saying I was most likely to be found on a yacht moored off the coast of Brazil writing for the Times Literary Supplement, so not being a doctor. So um, it's, yeah, I was not a brilliant medical student. I qualified, thought I wanted to be a psychiatrist, um, and then decided to go off and do a little bit of A&E because I thought it's probably worth just doing, you know, knowing how to manage some emergencies before I go off and be a psychiatrist. So I did some A&E and absolutely loved medicine and I fell in although I hadn't enjoyed being a medical student what I realized very quickly is that I really really loved being a doctor and to everyone's surprise I was quite good at it so I did a lot of my medical sort of sort of junior doctor training here in London um and kind of almost fell into a job so I I was quite good at what I was doing and almost fell into doing uh, kidney medicine and intensive care and was just about to go off and do that and sort of do my specialty training and that and I sort of took a step back and thought is this really what I want to do is that what I'm interested in and I've always been quite political and interested in inequalities and I thought really long and hard about what it is that I wanted to do in medicine and came back to kept coming back to HIV and I think that's because I was 10 when the HIV pandemic hit in um, 85, 86. 
I remember the iceberg adverts. They had a real sort of a really profound effect on me. I remember grown-ups talking about HIV in a very, very discriminatory way. And even as a 10-year-old thinking that that was grossly unfair. And then as a medical student in 1995, I was working on an infectious diseases ward up in Newcastle where I trained and I saw young boys, same age as me, dying of HIV. And I knew, you know, a year later, I knew that had they just survived for a year longer that they would have they would have lived. So that had quite a profound effect on me. So I um, went off and did HIV, infectious diseases, loved it, felt like I'd found my tribe. It's a really nice community of doctors and nurses to work in. And then... Yeah, I got really bitten by the academic bug. I was um, always interested in writing, always interested in uh, humanities, went off and did a master's in medical anthropology, came back and did some of my specialty training, decided I wanted to do a PhD, then decided to train as an epidemiologist. And what I do now is I combine numbers and stories in public health research. And I've been doing that for... 15 years now and yeah I'm lucky I have I have a fantastic job and I'm still really really in love with it that's that's amazing and many people have fallen into their jobs all those little things that that happen such as you know you seeing those boys dying and and really being aware that that leads people in into what becomes their really lifelong passion and I've heard you talk so many times about your research and it's really fascinating and, and so important and you've published many scientific and clinical papers and you're invited to talk around the world on your speciality. Can you tell us more about the research that you've been doing? Yeah, I think the work that I'm most known for is uh, work around HIV in women. So um, it's really important to remember that more than half of the global population of people living with HIV are women. And we often forget that and certainly in the UK and other resource rich settings women are often neglected when it comes to HIV research so if you look at data on um, participation in HIV drug trials women are the minority despite being the global majority so yeah I guess since 2008 my work has really focused on um, supporting women living with HIV to achieve the best quality of life and best health possible but throughout the life course so I started off with my PhD which was looking at HIV and pregnancy Um, I did a lot of work on how women engage in HIV care during pregnancy whether they come back for HIV care after they've had their baby I led a lot of work around um, infant feeding so um, did some of the UK's first qualitative research looking at how women with live women living with HIV how they felt about not being able to breastfeed their babies because at that time we were saying no woman living with HIV could breastfeed because there was a risk of transmission after that oh during this time I also did some work on intimate partner violence amongst women living with HIV with some colleagues and we found and that's still I think the largest study ever done in the UK we found that over half of women living with HIV had experienced partner violence in their lifetime that's gone on to change guidelines. And um, most recently, I have led the PRIME study, which is an NIHR funded study, 
looking at experiences of menopause amongst women living with HIV. No one had really looked at that before. There's a couple of, there were a couple of us internationally doing it. Now it's become much more of a thing. And that's because up until relatively recently, there weren't large numbers of women living with HIV reaching menopausal age. And it's also, as you probably well know, Joyce, is uh, menopause has never been seen as a particularly sexy area of research, although that's so, it is changing now. So, yeah, um, a lot of my work over the past eight years has been exploring how we can support women living with HIV to uh, transition through menopause in a really positive way. Yes, we, we've talked about sexy science before with some of the other guests and and for us researchers, the sexy science is what gets the grants. And yeah. luckily, luckily now, women's health does seem to have come up in the sexy science <laughs> league yeah. table. Um, and so hopefully things are being being funded. And I've I've heard you talk before. I, I Last year you did an event for International Women's Day and I tuned in and learned so much about some of the, the myths that I hadn't really understood were myths and weren't true. And you've mentioned some there about breastfeeding. And I think the HIV um, arena has changed so much over the, the last few decades. Can you tell us about some of the other myths that people might still think um, are true and that they've now been busted? They're not myths. They shouldn't be there. Oh. Yeah, I mean, we've just seen, if you think about HIV and just how fast the science has moved, it's been, you know, it, it's amazing, really. Just like in my lifetime, I've seen it go from a disease that invariably kills people to one that is a long-term manageable condition. So people, yes, people do die of HIV, um, but if you have early diagnosis and you get on treatment promptly, you are likely to have a normal life expectancy. The days of having to take 10 tablets three times a day that give you awful side effects are long gone. For most of my patients, they take one tablet a day with minimal side effects. They are likely to die of other um, non-HIV related conditions. There's even some data to suggest that people living with HIV will live longer than those without HIV because they're coming in for regular checkups and they're seeing their HIV doctors and getting their blood pressure checked and getting their cholesterol checked. So I think that's really interesting. The other really, really important news to get out to people is around transmission. So somebody who is on HIV treatment who is undetectable, which means that the virus hasn't gone, but it's um, it's controlled and you can't really pick it up with blood tests. Someone who is undetectable cannot pass HIV on during sex at all, zero chance. We call that undetectable equals untransmittable. So you equals you. And I think that's a game changer. All that stigma that's directed to people living with HIV about potentially infecting other people, that should be totally challenged now because U equals U means that people living with HIV can have sex without a condom and not pass it on. And I guess the last myth to try and bust is that women living with HIV can't have babies. So if you think back to the early days of the HIV um, epidemic, women were recommended to have terminations of pregnancy if they were living with HIV. Again, those days are gone. Women living with HIV who get pregnant, usually it's a, a planned pregnancy, even if it's not a planned pregnancy, as long as they're on treatment, 
And again, if they're undetectable at delivery, they can have a normal vaginal, de- so spontaneous vaginal delivery or for planned vaginal delivery. Um, and the chances of them having a baby who acquires HIV is less than 0.5%. So that, yeah, loads and loads of progress. That is that is amazing. So I, I was at university when HIV first came about and we'd all been having unprotected sex. I can remember mm. being, being at um, St. Mary's having my HIV test done um that the drama a few years ago it's a sin you know I could I can remember sitting in that corridor and thinking am I going to have HIV am I going to have this death sentence yeah um you know it's it's and I also I was working at a fertility clinic um and this was documented because we had a TV crew in um my boss was Robert Winston who was very controversial at the time and we had a TV crew in and he was putting through a HIV patient um and actually it was totally workable uh but the the team hadn't really been told they didn't know they weren't up to date with the research about what they needed to do to protect themselves and about the worry for the for the mother potential mother what they needed to do in the lab um so it wasn't really handled very well but it just shows i think i think the hiv um issue has been one of our medical success stories and you know you highlighted so many of the things there that have really in a relatively short time just totally changed this arena which is such great news to hear yeah we need to be better at getting those good news stories out and that's not to say that hiv doesn't have challenges people living with hiv faint still face really difficult challenges whether that's stigma and discrimination whether it's now having to deal with lifelong sort of comorbidity so people living with hiv have increased risk of other conditions such as diabetes heart disease so there are other challenges to face but there there are a lot of good news stories that i don't think we've been good enough at getting across to be honest and I didn't realise till I spoke to you. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you for showing that. <laughs> but but we do want to talk today about mothering against the odds, surviving infertility, mm. baby loss and postnatal depression. And and I invited you uh, recently onto one of our International Women's Day events. I can't remember whether it was last year or the year before. It was two years ago. Um, it was two years ago. Yeah. It was two years ago where we were talking about race and reproduction and it was it was they, people can find that um that discussion still on youtube on my youtube channel um but it was such a great discussion but um tell us about your journey with trying to have your family i mean you know what i'm going to start at the end because otherwise the story just sounds so difficult so before I go back I'd like to say that you know I'm sitting here in a really privileged position having come through that journey and come out of it with two healthy children a three-year-old and a four-year-old who I can hear playing downstairs and who may burst in to have special guest appearance Joyce um so my journey to parenthood was extremely complicated and difficult and painful um although you know clearly there's been joy at the end of it um and I speak very openly about it because a lot of the things that I encountered on the way are quite taboo so um I was quite ambivalent about whether I wanted to be a parent throughout most of my 30s I was well aware of my biological clock so this wasn't you know this wasn't you know me not knowing 
about my fertility. I knew that by leaving it, um, I was uh, sort of rolling the dice a bit. Um, I was with my husband for a long time, so we were together from my early 30s, but I had decided that I wasn't ready. I was doing my PhD and I was ambivalent about having children. Then when we got married in 2014, I was 37, 38, and I decided, okay, now's the time. And I had deliberately left it late. At the time, I thought, you know what? The chances are that it's going to be difficult to conceive, um, but that's okay because there's always IVF. And I think that's my that was my first mistake was banking on IVF as that was my insurance policy. And I realised looking back how naive I was. I hadn't I didn't really understand what IVF was. I don't think I really understand that. It doesn't matter whether you go, you know, if you're going for IVF, you're still dependent on your eggs. And, you know, if your eggs age, they age. So um, as I predicted, after six months of trying naturally, I was not, I wasn't pregnant. I was still not that worried. I thought, that's okay. I'll go and see my doctor and we'll get referred for IVF. And we did. And they fast tracked us because of my age. And I had two cycles on the NHS and they absolutely floored me. Um, I was physically, I've always managed IVF very easily. It hasn't bothered me. I haven't, you know, I guess because I'm a doctor, injections don't bother me. I feel very sort of comfortable in medical spaces. The psychological toll of IVF was, was awful, actually. I mean, I can barely remember it now. I'm so glad to have left it behind, to be honest. Um, those two first cycles, I didn't produce any eggs. Uh, first cycle, I produced one egg and it didn't survive the next day to be fertilized. Um, the second cycle was even worse. There were just, there were no eggs. And I still remember it was January 2016, going to see the doctor. And it was this lovely Indian doctor who I think probably similar age to me, who definitely sort of related and felt very sort of, you know, she had tears in her eyes as she was trying to tell me that I would never conceive with my own eggs. And she's, you know, so she said, look, you've got less than 1% chance of conceiving with your own eggs. We could do another cycle. You've got another cycle on the NHS, but in reality, there's, it's not going to work. You need to be thinking about donor eggs. And she was crying and I wasn't crying. And I don't know why. Um, and I've reflected on this a lot because for for many women, that's that's an intense grief, you know, to grieve the loss of, you know, potential sort of future genetic child. I was always very pragmatic. We, My husband and I decided adoption wasn't for us. I think it is a great choice for some people, but it isn't, wasn't a good choice for us. Uh, oh, that's one of my toddlers, Joyce. I'm sorry. He's <laughs> going to burst great. in. <laughs> okay. Hello. 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 Can can mummy do her work now? Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> mine, mine have done Sorry. mine have done some um, photo bombing as well when I've been doing lives. Okay. I love it. <laughs> Felt like that BBC news reporter. I have to like <laughs> You were very polite. Um, so uh, yeah, um, I, I I didn't find so being told that I needed to go for donor eggs wasn't a big deal for me we decided adoption wasn't for us it is right for some people I hate the fact that when you can't have a baby people immediately say oh it's fine you can adopt like adoption is an easy option because it's not it's a very difficult path to go down 
and that's not guaranteed either. It wasn't for us. So I knew that the only way of us being becoming parents was to go for donor egg IVF. And I was cool with that. I didn't really have this sort of huge sort of need to have my own genetic child. I just, I wanted to parent. I wanted to mother and particularly need that child to be genetically related to me. So we moved very quickly onto the donor egg IVF process. Um, it wasn't straightforward for us because we're a mixed race couple. My husband's white. I'm clearly Asian. Um, all the eggs in the UK at the time were from white women, white, white blonde haired women. And so I wanted any child to look a little bit like me. Um, so we did find one clinic that had uh, eggs from an Asian donor. We registered with them. We went through, um, so th by this stage, we were in the private IVF arena, which comes with its own sort of difficulties and problems and expense. Um, we got pregnant, uh, I think, on my fourth. Yeah, so this would have been my fourth cycle. No, third. Yeah, fourth cycle of IVF. Um, so second donor egg cycle, I got pregnant. Um and it's the first time I'd ever been pregnant. Uh, the um, Very early on, there were issues. Uh, basically, when they scanned me at five or six weeks, it looked like the baby was sort of not developing as the way, in the way that they should do. They were worried about heartbeat. I was told that I was likely to miscarry. So there was a lot of anxiety around the pregnancy already. And then we made it to sort of eight weeks and everyone was like no everything's fine yeah baby's fine baby's strong and I just thought right okay and I was nervous because IVF pregnancies I mean all pregnancies feel precious to people but IVF pregnancies feel so precious because you can't just try again it's you know the stakes are so high so I was already anxious I was obsessively looking at this miscarriage calculator online and I would every day I would put in stuff and then we got to 12 weeks and I was like, oh, you know, at 12 weeks, your risk of miscarriage goes down to less than 1%. I went in for a scan, I think at 14 weeks, and they said that uh, some of, some on the scan, some things didn't, didn't look quite right, but not to be worried about. Um, I was put on some aspirin and then 17 weeks, they scanned me and they said, there's something wrong with the baby, baby um, isn't developing properly, severely growth restricted. Uh, we need to do, basically, I was told to have an amniocentesis there and then on the spot. Um, so I had not expected any of this. And then suddenly they were sticking a needle into my belly to do an amnio and telling me that I had a you know, risk of miscarriage because of the amnio. They sent us home. They took you, anyone who's been to uh antenatal clinic will know there's a special room that you're sent to if you're going to get bad news so we went into that special room um and we were told to prepare ourselves that we will you know the baby was likely to have severe chromosomal abnormalities and I'd probably need to have a termination or the baby would likely die um at this stage we knew that's when we found out that we were going to have a boy so 17 weeks 18 weeks pregnant was told to just go home and wait for some results for those two weeks it was awful I mean I was just basically feeling like I was carrying a baby 
who was going to die. Um, and that made me feel, I, I, I felt horrific about my body. I felt like, you know, I'm carrying death. It was horrible. Um, I remember getting on a train with my husband and someone stood up to give me their seat because I was very visibly pregnant at this stage. And I didn't want to sit down because I didn't feel like I deserved it because I wasn't really pregnant. I didn't feel like I was deserving of that kind of, you know, care. Um, And that was awful. You know, I'd go to bed and I'd cradle my bump every night knowing that, you know, we were going to lose the baby. It was horrific. Um, We were, the test came back negative, actually. Everything seemed, you know, they couldn't find a reason for these problems. I went back in for another scan. And they said, oh, actually, the baby's growing, everything's looking better, but get yourself ready because you're likely to have a very, very preterm birth. So we were like, okay, it's all back on now. Maybe we're going to be all right. And then we were projected into, okay, we're going to have to deal with a baby who's born at 24, 25 weeks, which is a whole other ball game. But it's like, I can deal with that. And then very shortly after that, I was uh, in town having my hair done. We were about to go on holiday to Italy. Uh, my obstetrician had told me to go on holiday. She was like, you've got to go and just enjoy yourself. Um, I got up from being at the hairdressers and I noticed that I was soaked through and I didn't know what had happened. And I thought, have I wet myself? I mean, what's what's going on here? Surely I would have known. I couldn't control what was going on and then I, I I was so embarrassed I just walked out of the hairdressers and as I walked to the tube I thought shit my my waters are broken and I knew I knew there and then it's like I'm you know I'm 20 weeks pregnant my waters are broken my baby will not survive this um got onto the tube didn't say anything to anyone just had to sit there my waters were breaking phoned my husband told him to pick me up at the other end had to get into a car and had to tell him and I was like my waters are broken and that means we'll lose the baby we drove straight to uh straight to the maternity ward um when in that situation so two things there I had to be induced because the risk of my waters uh, staying broken um, were high in terms of me getting an infection that was going to be life-threatening, so they had to deliver the baby. So I had to be induced. I had to go through labour. couldn't have a caesarean section because uh, there is a risk that, that, that could compromise my future pregnancies. So I had to go through uh, vaginal birth, and I had to deliver on a delivery suite uh listening to other women having live babies and so that's what I did over three of I think three days I had a really difficult labor over three days and my son Altair our son Altair was born on the 10th of June 2017 at he was 20 weeks gestation and he was he was still born um and yeah I still one of the most you know painful sort of life-defining moments. I just want to give you a big hug. I mean, I've heard, <laughs> I've heard you tell, tell us this before, obviously. And it, it, you know, how much can one, well, a couple cope with, you know, all the infertility, yeah. the realising your own eggs, um, and, and yes, the emotional issues. We, we've done surveys asking women who have been through, and men who have been through fertility treatment, what 
what made them stop? And number one is the emotional. It, it's people don't like, oh, we'll just do IVF. We'll just adopt. You know, those yeah. those two things that you said are things that people throw out all the time. Yeah. And yes, you know, I've, I, you know, I've been the other side of the IVF table and I've had years of fertility treatment and it was, it's so, so hard. But then to add on there, you've got all the issues that you had during your scans, not knowing, you know, the results, results from the amnio and then, then the miscarriage. I, I don't know how you and your husband, how, how did you cope with that? How did you, how did you get over that? I, I, I don't think you'll ever get over it. It's always no. there. It's, you said it's, it, it is life defining and character defining and it will always be there with you. Yeah. But how did you then get the strength to try again after everything you've been through? I think we, I'm lucky. I have an amazing husband. We have a very, very strong relationship. And we've been together for a long time by the time this had happened. And actually going through the IV, IVF process had sort of really sort of solidified that. Um, we, I was determined that... Um, Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I was um I was determined that my uh, that I didn't want my experience of motherhood to just be being a mum to a baby who died. I wanted I was really determined to be able to mother a living child. And um I'm a, I think my personality is I'm naturally extremely stubborn and I just didn't really want to take no for an answer so um after Altair was born his post-mortem showed that I had a very very rare autoimmune condition so basically my body rejects um the placenta and it stuffs up the sort of placental blood vessels which means it deprives the baby of nutrients um and this particular condition recurs in pregnancy almost 100% of the time and it carries a very very high risk particularly of late pregnancy loss so pregnancy loss beyond 18 weeks so it's a particularly cruel condition to have because a lot of people who have late pregnancy loss like I had um it's usually a one-off thing not a recurring thing but yeah so this was like heaping misery upon misery for us I was originally told that there was no treatment that would have to have surrogate and I didn't want to go down the surrogacy line because I was thinking, you know, I've already like had to give up quite a lot. This is one thing that I can't do. So um, being a doctor and being academic and being extremely stubborn, I decided to read every single paper on this condition. And then I wrote to every single expert. I emailed them and said, this is what's going on with me. I want to know you know, I I kind of did like a mini systematic review. I was like, so this is what I think is probably the most likely combination of treatments to work. What do you think? And I was so lucky because I met this amazing, so this incredible professor of obstetrics up in Manchester, Alex Hazel. Still remember, he was at a conference, uh, I think in Australia, and he phoned me as soon as he got my email from the conference to say, I can help you. I've had a few women with this condition who are on experimental treatment. And he was like, it's early days, but it looks like it's working. And I will never, ever, ever be able to thank him enough for doing that and doing that on a Saturday. You know, he didn't need to do that. So we put a plan in place. I got everyone on board. I went to see the best, you know, 
the best of the best, the profs, you know, who knew everything about placental immunology. I learned everything I could about placental immunology, lined up a new um new donor although this time we had to travel to cyprus to have egg donation because there were no eggs available in the uk for anybody who was brown so we went to cyprus and uh my yeah my sixth cycle of ivf by this stage resulted in the little boy who just photobombed (laughs) (laughs) paris who's uh four and a bit now and uh in terribly terribly anxious pregnancy highly medicated had to have scans every two weeks had to travel to Manchester every month I was looking back extremely unwell mentally during that pregnancy so I had undiagnosed severe prenatal anxiety and uh probable post post post-traumatic stress disorder um but I didn't know it at the time and went undermanaged so unsurprisingly when Faris suddenly arrived I wasn't prepared for him I wasn't prepared I the end goal for me was just to have a baby who was born alive and I hadn't really thought about the other bits of like what do you do after the baby is born how do you look after this living baby and um I just crashed basically as soon as he was born and just went got very very severe postnatal depression and can't really remember much of his first six months really really difficult but was able to advocate for myself managed to get to see a psychiatrist went on antidepressants had therapy did the therapy have been on antidepressants since then and you know made a full recovery But there was a final plot twist in all of this. So just as I was recovering from postnatal depression, my son was seven months old, eight months old. Yeah, eight months old. And I just thought, I don't feel I just don't feel right. I'm um, I was just feeling a bit tired, a bit nauseous. Uh, went to see my GP to have my smear test. GP said, oh, you know, should we do pregnancy tests? And we looked at each other and kind of laughed. Went, no, what's the point? <laughs> you know, I, I'd been told I could never conceive with my own eggs. So we, she went ahead and did my smear test. Um, still not feeling right. And then I thought, I'm going to have to go and see someone about this. And I thought, oh, you know what? I'll just do a pregnancy test because they are going to ask me to do one. And I can't remember when my last period was. And I thought, you know, I'm I was in my I was 43 and I was breastfeeding so why would I have periods so went upstairs did a pregnancy test found out I was pregnant and I couldn't believe it because it's not like I would have had you know I had a seven-month-old baby I wasn't like having loads of sex plus I was 43 and I was breastfeeding and I've been told I could never conceive I was left thinking, well, how pregnant am I? Because I don't remember when my last period was. (laughs) Am I like 20 weeks pregnant? Um, Actually, I was horrified because I thought I've literally just recovered from postnatal depression. I really couldn't cope with a baby. What am I going to do now? Had a scan. I was six weeks pregnant. I went straight back on the medication and... um, 1st of April 2020 so end of the first week of the first lockdown in the UK my daughter Lyra was born um 
and yeah, I I'm in a very unusual position. There's a few of us that I know through Instagram who have a donor egg and an own egg conceived baby, and we have that. So we've yeah, absolutely mad mad journey. Shuma, it it really is. If you if you saw this in a drama on TV, you just think this is crazy. Nothing. Yeah, you wouldn't believe. You think all those things couldn't happen. Actually, I don't know if you saw it, but um, there was a there was a drama called Maternal, which is about three young oh, female yeah. doctors that go back to work after having children. And actually, the the Asian woman in it, um, she had adopted a child and then fell pregnant. Um, I wonder if they listened to your story, but she didn't have all the other things. That you um, but uh, so, as a mother now. You have been through, honestly, I, I, I don't know, in all my experience, I, I've been working in fertility since 87. I have never, ever in my life heard someone that that did mother against all odds. Yeah. Um, how, how are you feeling now? You know what? I feel good now. I feel really good. It's taken a long time and hard work to get to this point. So as I said, I still take antidepressants. I've had therapy for a long time. I have an amazing peer support group that I'm part of called Motherly Love, where it's a group of women who we all have kids similar ages and we've all experienced our own mental health issues and they've become like my closest friends, some of them. Um, And I have some amazing friends who I made through social media during my IVF days who are actually some of my best friends who I speak to every day. So I think combination of friends, therapy, medication and my gorgeous children, they're, you know, they're three and four now. And we're over the baby years, which I found baby years really, really difficult. But I love having toddlers. Um, And I'm back at work and I'm working full time. So I have a bit of time for me. And life's good it's it's taken a while but you know I feel like there was a shadow over our lives for such a long time so from 2014 I would say until this year so nearly 10 years of sort of living a sort of half-life and yeah the colors come back into our lives again and it, it it's yeah I'm eternally grateful for that and thank you so much and it's so wonderful that we have people like you <clears throat> who are sharing their stories and talking about the ups and the downs because life does throw ups and downs at many people but mm. but some some more than others but you know thank you so much for relaying your story and how you you did fight you know, both of you fought so much to be parents and it's and it's a beautiful story now we're at a, the beautiful time <laughs> so it's yeah, a beautiful absolutely. story and and you mentioned your tribe before and you've mentioned social media and and I think having that support and you know you you did which what I really think everyone needs to do you didn't sit back and just you didn't sit back on any of this you looked how can I help myself how can I get through this you got the treatments you know I think it's hard for some of the public you know with our NHS system as it is quite broken at the moment but it's really important that it, for them to to do that and to find that support but let, let's look at social media so you mm-hmm. you've done a lot you've done a lot on social media um how do you feel about it we had a chat about this before we started and you know for some of us there are ups and downs 
But I think it's really important that academics, health professionals, etc., share our, our work experience, um, which is mm. you know what research we're doing, especially if it's like yours, which is so involved with the public, um, mm. but also our personal journeys if we want to, uh, which you have done. So yeah, your experience with social media. Oh, it's been it's been almost sort of entirely positive. So um, I. It's again, this has all happened very sort of organically for me. I started using Twitter in uh, 2007, 2008 and just used it like messing around on Twitter. And slowly over time, it's morphed into a very sort of professional Twitter account. And it's where I do a lot of sort of building my professional network, telling people about uh, the work I do. What I often do is if we have a paper, I do a Twitter thread where I break down the paper and like do findings of the paper in very accessible ways. Um, and that's been brilliant. And I have shared a bit of my personal life over the past few years because I've thought it's really important t- for me to be human as a doctor, as an academic. And a lot of the stuff that I talk about, a lot of the things that I have been through personally are taboo. So talking about baby loss, talking about IVF, talking about donor conception, talking about postnatal depression, I feel like it's really important for people to see that it can happen to anyone. It can, you know, I think from the outside, I, you know, people may perceive me as, you know, having quite an easy life, having everything I could wish for. And I do have everything I could wish for now. But I think it's important for people to realise that there are other things going on as well that, you know, uh, postnatal depression can look like this you know it, 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 it doesn't happen just to other people so that's been really important um when I was going through IVF Instagram which I think has changed a lot over the past couple of years but sort of early days of Instagram there was a really 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 strong IVF community and many of the girls that I was going through IVF with now uh, are now close friends and there was a baby loss community on there. And, you know, I felt totally wrapped up in that community and supported. And it's been brilliant. And one of the things that's come out of me being on social media and being so open about our baby loss journey is that um, Tommy's, the baby charity, approached me to be on their board of trustees because I'd been doing so much stuff on social media. And that's been wonderful because that's given me a real platform to uh influence policy at a national level so to actually take that experience and do something creative with it so yeah big advocate for social media is I think it's great and it's one of my mantras as well to try and turn a negative situation around to something positive and it's hard to do but but you've certainly done that and um it's it's really commendable so thank you um so the podcast is called why didn't anyone mm. tell me this? Now, have you heard in your very vast experience people say that? And what what sort of things have they asked? I think the thing that I <laughs> think that I most commonly hear at the moment is um, probably sort of a reflection of what stage of life I'm at at the moment. So, two things. Firstly, from you know parenting groups. Uh, people say why didn't anyone tell me that having like that having newborn babies is so hard like why didn't anyone tell me that this is just like for the first year it's just really really hard 
Uh, and recently, friends have been saying, why don't people tell you that you kind of just have to grit your teeth, get through with it, get, get through it, and then it gets better and better. So that's one thing is this, how difficult it is making that transition into parenthood. And it's not all, you know, lovely sort of trips outside with your baby in a pram cooing at them. <laughs> The second thing, which we're talking a lot about uh, so with my friends, so I'm just about to hit 47 and I, I went through menopause last year um, and am now very happily on HRT. But uh, and most of my friends are sort of mid-40s. So we're all going through it. We're all perimenopausal at the moment, postmenopausal. And everyone's saying the same thing. Why didn't anyone tell us about this? Why? Did, and I'm sure you get this as well, Joyce. It's why, why don't we, why did no one tell us about this earlier? And it was slightly different for me because I do menopause research that I was totally prepared for it and kind of knew. But yeah, friends, that's what I hear about the most is why, why didn't people tell me it could affect me in so many different ways? It's not just hot flushes. Yeah, it's, it's so much education. And actually you brought up something I think is really important. In the textbooks, and I found this when I was researching for my book, I just found too many myths that when you went back mm. to the original research, they they had been Chinese whispered along the way and they, they, they'd been extrapolated beyond recognition. And one of them is something that affects you. So the textbooks and the early papers will tell you that you lose your fertility 10 years before you go through menopause. But you had you had your daughter at 43, naturally. You went through the menopause, yeah. so what, a few years later, a handful of years later? A handful of years later. Yeah, so, two years later. I, I'm hearing this more and more, and I'm going to start talking to yeah. my menopause experts about this because I, I started saying, and when I talked about eight to 10 years before, because I thought this 10 years isn't right, but you're absolutely an example, and I've seen many examples. Um, so it's something that we, we really need to, to readdress. But yes, education on reproductive health we are working on it we've set up an international yeah. group um we've got a uk group we are working on it and i i've uh, our group our international group have produced a teaching aid for teachers to talk about all of this including menopause yeah. and we are tri trialing it in september it's been sort of one of my aims for I've been on this project for about five or six years and I'm so pleased we've now almost got our product in a way it's, it's going yeah. to be open for consultation uh hopefully any day on our Eshra website um hopefully by the time this is out we'll we'll be doing that and um the reason why it's been delayed slightly is because when I set up these the international group we called ourselves the international fertility education um initiative but all through all the work I've been doing in schools we're not we're not talking about having a baby. We're talking about reproductive health. Mm -hmm. So I hope by the time this goes out, our, it should be official that our international group has now been renamed the International Reproductive Health Edu Education Collaboration. And the research, the, the education guide we've got for teachers, that's what it's called. It's called Reproductive Health Education. So we shouldn't be talking about fertility education in schools. It needs to be wrapped up. No. In reproductive health, it needs to be LGBTQ plus inclusive and it needs to appreciate people don't necessarily want a child. But things like puberty, endometriosis, PCOS, menopause, menstrual cycle, um, male uh, cancers that can affect prostate, penis, yeah. etc., female cancers, 
That's what we need to be teaching our young people. And yeah, menopause, all of it. We need to teach all of it. So that's what we've done. We've made it. We're that's not going to be that helpful for your friends. <laughs> but it will it will for our kids. Our kids. Exactly. Well, actually, my kids will just let but my kids know because I've taught them. But I'm hoping that for your kids, this will be embedded. This will be taught to them um in a in a appropriate evidence-based way with no myths and we'll hopefully get to a good place so and regardless yeah. of gender as well so you know the, oh. regardless of gender you're taught about menopause you're taught about endometriosis honestly it's gonna do it that yeah i look forward to the next generation of smart kids <laughs> some schools have asked me to teach the girls separately and i'm no no the boys have got to hear and and, hear. and I don't, it's not just about things that affect the girl anyway it, it indirectly affects every boy and every yeah. man so Absolutely. we we cannot do this behind closed doors so um yeah anyway um so that's been so wonderful I want to finish on some more sort of personal things what oh. you've you've done so much you've you've jug we've talked in previous podcasts about juggling career and motherhood and your your fight to become a mother you know you really went through so much so what motivates you I think this is a very hard question but what motivates you um you know what I I am so lucky because I absolutely love my job I just I I wake up most days and I want to go to work whether that's seeing my patients in clinic or whether it's doing my research I am absolutely 100% driven by improving HIV and sexual health care for people so yeah that still still energizes me and I love it and I feel very lucky to have found a job that I love so much that's ter that's terrific when I give careers talks in schools I say that's exactly it you've got to have a job where you want to get out of bed every morning yeah and and go and do it that's yeah. really important and I'm doing a lot about happiness um my next book I hope is going to be called good health and happiness and I'm very aware that some people um have trouble finding happiness I don't think they think about what makes them happy so I've mm. asked all my guests to give us a little bit of motivation what makes you happy and where is your happy place so what makes me happy I I love being in forests and in woodland. So I'm re I'm a really sort of really big believer in forest bathing and have done a few forest bathing classes. And I'm lucky because I have a son who is also equally obsessed by forests and trees. So as a family, we go out every weekend and we go on long, long, long muddy walks in forests and hug trees and look at leaves and pick up ladybirds. And I absolutely love it. And it's something I didn't do before I had my children. It's something my children have really naturally led us to. So, yeah, that's that's my happy space and happy place. And that's where I can sort of stop my brain from ticking over. So, yeah, green space and forests. I love that. And and I think that I said this in my first podcast, which was talking about my life. We've got to let our brains be still. And, yeah. you know, you're doing a, such a, you know, high, high profile job. It takes a lot of our energy. And I think that space to be still and green or blue yeah. <laughs> is, is great. And the very final question, 
you're a wise woman now. Um, we've got to we get to that age where we feel yeah. we're a wise woman. What yeah. advice would you give your younger self? I think one thing I would tell my younger self is to really make the most of having time to myself um, and time alone. I was always so anxious to meet a partner and to, you know, and then to have a family that I think sometimes I forgot to actually enjoy the time and space alone, which I crave sometimes now. Anybody who's sort of, you know, has a very busy life and busy family probably understands that. So it would be more, you know, it's okay to be alone and enjoy that time alone that actually there will come a point in your life where you won't have that. So yeah, that's, that's That's, what I tell my younger self. That's beautiful. And for me, COVID taught me that COVID taught me to appreciate and have quality time on my own. Don't just sit on the sofa and read a book or watch something on TV, go and do great things. So I go to gigs on my own, go to the theater on my own and I've got lots yes. of friends and I don't tell them. And I go, well, they said, why didn't you tell me? And I was like, I just want to be alone sometimes. So I, th- I think that's beautiful. That's really good. And I've done that since having kids. I've gone, when I've had, when I've had trips abroad with work, I've taken myself off for an extra day to just, you know, be in a new place, totally alone. And I don't think I would have done that 20 years ago. And it's wonderful. It's wonderful to discover the world alone. So, yeah, I think you're right. It's quality time, you know, on your own is actually a really good thing and nothing to be scared of. I love it. Shima, thank you so much. You've, you're have you an amazing person. And I do want to give, always give you a hug. Oh, <laughs> We've been virtual for a long time. Thank you so much for spending the time talking to us. You've really told us so much. We've learned so much about HIV, but so much about mothering against all odds. So thank you so much for being my guest. Thanks, Joyce. Thank you so much. And next time we'll meet in person and give each other a real life hug. We will. We will. Thank you.